Welcome to the Meb Faber Show, where the focus is on helping you grow and preserve your wealth. Join us as we discuss the craft of investing and uncover new and profitable ideas, all to help you grow wealthier and wiser. Better investing starts here. Meb Faber is the co-founder and chief investment officer at Cambria Investment Management. Due to industry regulations, he will not discuss any of Cambria's funds on this podcast. All opinions expressed by podcast participants are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Cambria Investment Management or its affiliates. For more information, visit cambriainvestments.com. Welcome, podcast listeners. We have a radio show for you today. Welcome, Jeff. What's happening? Well, it's kind of the Ides of March for you and I both. Yeah, it's been painful. Our office consists of mostly, we got a UVA grad here speaking. Jeff is Carolina, and we got a couple Michigan State people <laughs> too. It just, we've all gotten demolished. The Virginia, it's funny. I was, I have a group of guy friends from the South that we go and watch football games every year. It's kind of a guy trip, and we used to do, always do it in Wrightsville Beach. And this year, we have a friend that now lives up in Brevard. Hey, Stu, if you're listening. And no so way said, Stu is listening right now. No chance. No <laughs> chance. And so he said, hey, I'd like to host this year. And so we said, sure. And Brevard, for those who are listening who aren't familiar, is kind of outside of Asheville. But it's also kind of blossomed into this big craft beer and food and music scene. It's really just an awesome town. Anyway, so Friday night, Virginia was playing and was a 20-point favorite over, um, what was it, University of Maryland-Baltimore County. County. Yeah. And interesting side note, the coach is the son of former Wake Forest coach Dave Odom. I'll tell you another interesting side note. He, well, let's see, about five doors down from where I grew up in Winston-Salem, there was wet concrete, and Ryan Odom drew his name in the wet concrete. Ryan Odom's the coach of yeah. UMDB. That's was... probably worth something today. Go, go <laughs> dig up that concrete. He also was a ball boy for UVA at one point. Anyway, I wasn't even watching the game because I just assumed it would be a huge blowout, and we were having dinner with friends in, in Virginia. One of my buddies elbows me and says, Meb, you know Virginia's losing. I said, yeah, but that they're always down at the half, whatever and became the first number one seed in history to lose uh, opening round. They lose in tremendous fashion as well. After 20, thumping, 20 points. <laughs> after thumping Carolina in the ACC tournament. Uh, we'll go back and rest on our six national championships. Um, but but it's funny because I, I, there's some interesting takeaways. You know, I want to write an article with you, by the way. I, I forgot about this. And it's basically called, anytime like something bad happens in the market, in the way that financial advisors or investment managers who have a strategy or an algorithm, you know, typically they mention something along the lines of, hey, clients, it's okay. Like, we've seen this before. And the article I want to write is, is called something like, hey, clients, it's okay. We've never seen this before. Meaning, you know, the, the future, it's great to look back at history, but there's continually going to be surprises. And so at some point, statistically speaking, a number one seed would lose. And I, I love following, I don't really do sports betting, but I love following that world because it's a lot of corollaries to quant investing and everything else and anomalies. Some of my favorites, we talked about an old uh, podcast we had back earlier this year on, you know, there's an anomaly if the team has to fly far, that it's, that they have a headwind on the, on the, 
on the line. Anyway, I was laughing because there was a both sides of this. There was a bet at Vegas published where a guy had bet twenty thousand dollars because number one seed had never lost, and there was three number one seeds that are all favored by like eighteen twenty points. He bet on it was a money line for Virginia, Villanova, and I don't know Xavier or someone to to all win. And he lost the bet, so he lost twenty grand. But the, but the ridiculous part about this bet is he was betting twenty thousand to win eight hundred, and this has so many parallels to the old kind of short ball trade that just that kind of blew up a few of these funds in early February. Yep, where you know the, the old picking up pennies in front of a steamroller, and just those trades are so unattractive to me. I get it on enough bets if you're doing that ten ten thousand times over, but I, I would I would. Uh, Talk about that ruining that guy's weekend, man. Yeah, I mean, well, that's what I found when I was doing more options a while ago was that, you know, the win percentage was high. You know, I'd make money on whatever, 89% of the trades, but the ones that you would lose, the losses would offset so much of the actual absolute value of your gain. It just wasn't worth it. So anyway, I, I drowned my sorrows at, they had a couple really cool breweries in the area, Oscar Blues, which is kind of dually located in two of my states i grew up in so they have one in Asheville and one in lyons colorado which is home to a big uh, bluegrass festival and there's a sierra nevada new building and i'm not kidding you when i say it's the nicest brewery or winery probably that i've ever seen it it we we looked it up because it was so ridiculous it was like 170 million to build it's impressive. You are a huge brewery fan. You've seen a it's lot of them. Really, so. <laughs> it's really something. nice. It was beautiful. Anyway, we went to a, a really gorgeous Sapporo brewery when we were in Japan. So uh, as far as travel, I may be in New York and Chicago in April and May. So uh, listeners, if you want to catch up, drop me a line. And then Europe, all the European listeners, I think going to be making a stop in Greece and Italy in June. But if there's other listeners that want to set up a meeting or potential event or speech or something, reach out. Also, there's a possibility of Ireland in the fall. So all, all TBD. What's the, what's the Ireland trip? There was a Trinity College was putting on something, but we're, we're, we're trying to organize the timing on it. We'll see. So anyway, what are we talking about today? Let's go through a few of your tweets of the week, and then let's jump on some questions that have come in from Twitter. And call it a day. By the way, Jeff, this is episode 99. Can you believe it? Oh, God, it's been the longest 99 Oh, it's been exhausting. <laughs> How do we ever live through this? Well, 100 is going to be a lot of fun. It's a really fun episode coming up. If you guys have any guest suggestions, if you have any sponsor suggestions, any ideas for us, let us know. We've, I think we've gotten better over the course of the 100. Well, I think I've gotten better. You, yeah. You're questionable. Yeah, that's true. 100. <laughs> All right, let's, uh, let's dive in here. So I still can't solve my podcast curation problem, and I'm going to stop because I don't want to get into it. But listeners, if you have any solutions, let me know because it's I listened to two really bad podcasts walking the dog this week, and it just infuriates me. What's the closest solution you've seen yet? It, There's thought, not one. It's, Apple it's, was it doing is, something. Hmm? I thought Apple was trying to come out with some prototype that basically... No, there's, it needs to be being able to rate per episode and... There's one site, but it just doesn't have a critical mass of users yet. I think it's Podbay. Was that it? And I think the only solution in the meantime to bridge it is brute force, getting some people to actually just listen to a bunch and, and rate them. But I, I, well, I don't know. Let's, let's move on. I don't know why I brought that up. I can sense the anger coming. So angry. So angry. On the, on the flip side, though, when we sent this out to the idea farm, 
And listeners, if you haven't subscribed to Idea Farm, it's free trial, 30 days, check it out. And a lot of the stuff I send out is, is not really conducive to talking about or posting on the podcast. So for example, there was a great Jeremy Grantham podcast that came out recently. And so we sent it out to, to the pod, uh, Idea Farm listeners. Um, so there's a lot of resources. We just updated our annual back tester, which at some point we should just turn into a website. So okay. listeners, if anyone wants to turn that into a website for us and get paid for it, and you're an amazing web developer sort of person, uh, let me know. What's the email address? My, my email address? With, feedback at the Web Favor Show. All right, there you go. All right, so uh, first thing let's dive into is your tweet about um, a presentation from Research Affiliates. You were just down there at their conference last week, and it looks like they had a, um, a presentation that you claim should be required reading for financial advisors everywhere, especially the ones using mutual funds and hedge funds. So why don't you uh, recap for us what this was, what are the takeaways, give us the rundown. By the way, listeners... I assume most of you at this point listen to this pod at one and a half to two times speed because Jeff and I are, are slow draws. But if you want something, just a little late March humor, try listening to about five minutes of this podcast at half time speed. And it, it sounds like uh, both of us have had about 75 drinks and a bunch of I don't know, sleeping pills or something. It's it's really funny. Anyway, okay, so let's, so yeah, the Research Affiliates Conference, they put on an advisor symposium. A lot of great friends down there. I got to catch up with a lot of buddies. Really fun event. Well done. Some of the smartest minds in the biz. And so Rob had a presentation. I actually wasn't there for Rob's presentation, but I had the slides. And at some point they said that they would distribute the videos. So if I can, I'll try to just distribute those to the, the podcast links if we can and the idea farm. But there's a lot of great talks, but Rob's was actually, he's been kind of a early proponent of being mindful of all the costs and in investing. And so the one that everyone pays attention to is the sexy active passive stuff, right? And then number two or in the same sort of vein is fees. Everyone talks about fees, but the one that no one really talks about or focuses on is taxes. And so Rob wrote a paper on this probably 20 years ago, maybe 30 years ago on this point. And there's actually been a lot that's changed in the meantime. So the biggest development is in starting the really the late 90s is ETFs. And the ETFs are such a vastly superior structure. It's actually amazing. I, I think back and it's amazing the mutual fund business and lobby like allowed this to happen. Really, it's kind of unbelievable. I mean, it's it's a fantastic development for investors, but it it put mutual funds at such a massive disadvantage. Well, what's, what's the benefit? Explain for listeners what the, the, the massive benefit of the ETF structure is. So ETFs, for, for most people that are listening probably know this, but an equity fund, for example, that has high turnover, the equity, the ETF can lay off capital gains basically onto the market makers. So for all intents and purposes, so let's say you buy an ETF today and you sell it in 10 years and it goes up 500% or whatever. And it's an active strategy that's trading every day. That's unrealistic, but let's just say. If that was normally a mutual fund, you'd be paying capital gains every year. Short term, long term, all of that stuff. In fact, in mutual funds, you can even have a scenario where you buy a fund, lose money on it, and still owe capital gains taxes. It is a horrible possible setup, but it happens to people all the time. They don't know better. They buy this hot mutual fund 
and, and, and has embedded gains that they're anyway. So an ETF, you buy it. And for the most part, it's over half of ETFs have never paid a capital gain ever. And for the vast majority of the other ones that actually just rounds to zero. So they paid a little bit and you can't avoid dividends, of course, or, or bond income, but, but capital gains talking about trading. So it is an enormous benefit. And Rob quantified it in this paper or this presentation and said, ETF tax efficiency remains after adding in the impact of, uh, of dividends on taxes. And nearly half of mutual funds have distributions causing tax burdens in excess of 1%, which leads to a 0.8 worse tax alpha for mutual funds versus ETFs. So it creates an enormous hurdle and sort of base case scenario for anyone to ever invest in a mutual fund. And ETFs, like it's just such a vastly better structure. And so we talked a lot about this and there's a lot of offshoots and, you know, we published this paper, which I haven't seen that much in the literature about it. And so we're, we're kind of in our own corner and maybe I just haven't seen it, but I circulated amongst a lot of academics and friends and it was that concept of avoiding dividends, you know, where it was a value approach, but avoiding income because income is something you can't really avoid. If, if you're a taxable investor, you, you have to pay on, on the income regardless, unless it's in a tax exempt account, but you could also avoid the income. And this is ignoring doing, doing a note. You could do an exchange traded note that would avoid it. But, but anyway, so it's this big sort of, you know, if I, the listeners, how many of you own mutual funds? And on top of that, how many of you own particularly active mutual funds and active mutual funds that have high turnover and high fees? So it's like all of these things, it's, you know, it goes back to like dieting and weight loss and getting your life in order with spring cleaning, whatever it may be, everyone's always going to fix it tomorrow. And this goes back to our old zero budget portfolio and ideas. But how many of you still own these and, and oh, I'll clean up my portfolio at some point. It's crazy to me that, you know, it's, it's such a huge, huge, massive headwind. When you combine the fees and the tax efficiency, it adds up to a pretty, pretty massive delta. Have you considered any specific tax strategies? I mean, here we are nearly at April. Is there anything off the top of your head as something low-hanging that listeners can do uh, from a tax perspective just to help out their portfolios? Well, that, my, my, my side one, which is always unclaimed.org. Yeah, you haven't mentioned that yet this I haven't this mentioned year. this year. It's been a while. Listeners, if you're new to the program, we've saved or we've found money it's at least 200,000 at this point. It may be 300,000 where a lot of people don't know, but state governments have billions upon billions upon billions of unclaimed property, meaning usually it's you overpaid your utility bill or you had some dividends that went to an old address. But you can go to unclaimed.org, search all the states and where you live, where you used to live, search your family members, ex-girlfriends, whatever you want to do. And uh, they list assets. Some states only list whether it's above or below $100. Some states list exactly how much it is. So you can search California, for example, and search Britney Spears or ex-governors or anyone that's famous. This used to be my favorite joke. I said, job applicants, you should search the people you're, you're getting ready to go interview for because no one likes money more than anything, but also found money. And third, money from the government. Well, your point earlier, or you said last time we talked about this, RIA should be doing this. You know, go to their clients and say, I just found you an extra two grand. We've had a lot of investment advisors and planners that have done this and they send us notes or uh, words of thanks and say, I've 
clients for life now. I found this person 500, 5,000. The highest single claim was a family had found a trust or something that they didn't know existed, and it was $80,000. So people have sent us some gifts. By the way, episode 100, I want to thank you guys. We've continued to get fun gifts in the mail. And uh, what did we recently have? We recently had some Tennessee barbecue and some wine from Oregon, some Pinot Noir. So anyway, you guys want to send us something? Send it, send it to send it to Jeff, and we'll we'll share it with the crew. Oh no, we got some micro brews from award-winning state home micro brews. Although they're the sour beers, wait, 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 they're in the fridge. You not know this? You've not a- told me. Including some, brews. they're hidden behind all your yogurt and <laughs> and spinach salads. Um, and brought down a few Plinies. So uh, some great gifts. Thank you, listeners. But so unclaimed, unclaimed is really fun to look it up. It's a great thing to do for your clients and friends. And so if you guys find anything, let me know. We should, we should keep it running, Tally, but it's certainly over two hundred, if not 300000 now. While we're on the topic of taxes, let's pivot to another uh, tweet from yours. Um, this one is about crypto. And the tweet actually is about how there's a 2%, only in the crypto world could a 2% management fee be considered you know, a deal, a bargain. But what comes to mind actually more so than that is the story about uh, the the crypto guy who had the various gains and then losses and then the tax implications of all this. So why don't you fill us in? You see a lot of bad behavior going on in when there's kind of these euphoria manias, right? And and crypto certainly died off quite a bit since most of these are in forty to sixty to eighty percent drawdowns. But Coinbase which charges, by the way, I think 2% per transaction. So it's funny. It's so funny about crypto because so crypto is this big libertarian bent. And I get that part and I've been cheering for it. But it's so funny because, yeah, we're going to get away from the banks and Wall Street. By the way, we're charging you 2% to transact in this. And then so the CEO of Coinbase does a tweet and it says something along this line of, Hey, we're launching a market cap weighted crypto index fund. It's for accredited investors only, but without all the hefty fees of something, of Wall Street or something. And so, of course, what do I do? I go look at the prospectus or the offering docs, and it's literally a 2% management fee. Probably also (laughs) charging 2% transaction costs on it. I didn't look, but it's just, you know, it's just classic people that make these claims, but. You know, it's just such bad behavior. So anyway, so you see a lot of funny stuff going on right now. So it's tax time. And listeners, by the way, IRS has your information. Coinbase had to give up all the account info for anyone that has more than 20,000 gains. And so I think the IRS is going to tax every single part of the entire ecosystem. You're a miner, boom, that's income. You made a capital gain in in trading crypto. Boom! That's that's capital gains. And how Small, many people do you think are reporting? Their gains? I, I bet zero. I bet it's like ten percent. Most of, particularly the younger set, the millennials, right? So anyway, there was there was a funny Reddit post where a guy had put his entire retirement into Bitcoin or something and made some money, and then at near the end of the year, then switched it over, I think, to some altcoins but then realized he had to pay taxes. And then the altcoins have now all gone down like 70%. And so he 
actually owes more than he ever even had because he owes a bunch of taxes from last year. Twenty, it's, it's just it's people investing in what they don't know, and it's you know it's it's such. There's so many similarities to every kind of mania. I mean, it's all the people that were buying and flipping houses in the mid 2000s. It was all the people in the late 90s that were watching CNBC and, and day trading stocks. It's funny you mentioned the word investing. I, I read something recently about the attempted counter argument to paying gains on these cryptos. Is that what well, this is a currency? You know, if I go to Europe and I uh, you know change my currency, I'm not going to. Pay any gains on that? So why would I do that here for my Bitcoin? First of all, you would if you exchange if if you bought euros and the euros tripled or did whatever Bitcoin did, you sure as hell would own capital gains on on euros. The problem is currencies mostly are stable, so you're not anyway. But good luck with that, listeners. <laughs> Decide to avoid the IRS. See how that goes. Let me know. Just don't report it and see how that goes. I'm I'm guessing you will you will regret that decision. All right, the next tweet of yours, let's chat about. You showed the drawdown on U.S. equities and bonds in real terms between 1900 and 2010, and it was actually a quiz. Tell us about the quiz, what the results were, takeaways. So the, all that matters in investing, all that matters is what we call returns you can eat. So that's returns after all fees, after all taxes, and after inflation. And that's all that matters. The problem is everyone talks and thinks in what we call nominal terms, so before inflation. But inflation's pretty low now. It's called a couple percent in the US, but historically it's been a lot higher. It's been double digits here in the US. It's been at times in UK and and then get even more dramatic in places around the world with hyperinflations, it's been much much higher. It's your Greek bond on the wall. Greek yeah, we had we had a gift from an old speech I gave this Greek bond from 18 something or other, not paying interest, by the way. And so anyway, so inflation is a really important function of returns, but people don't think about it because it's too hard. And so here's an example. I said, readers, and this is also a prelude to our next podcast guest, which you guys are going to love. I said, readers, if you go back 120 years, what do you think the largest real after inflation drawdown, which is a peak to trough loss, if you held US government long term bonds, and I gave four choices, zero to 20% loss, 20 to 40% loss, 40 to 60% loss, and 60% or worse. And most people said zero to 20, then the next most said 20 to 40, then the next most said 20 to 60, and less than 20% said over 60. And the answer is over 60. And what is it specifically? It was, I think it was like 60. Well, if you use long term, the longer term bonds and, and Jim O'Shaughnessy chimed in and uh, posted a great chart and he showed that for long term governments, it was 67% for T-bills. So if you sat in cash, you lost half. And so that's the problem. So most people think of government bonds and they think, well, if I just hold this for 10 years, I'll earn 2% a year, and that's gravy. What, what they don't understand, that's fine in a world of 0 or 1% inflation. That's horrible in a world of 3 4 5% inflation. But this applies to everything. It makes it a lot harder for people to compare apples to apples with, with 
various asset classes and investments. I highly recommend listeners, again, listen to the 100th episode coming up because we talk a lot about this. But it, there's a lot of takeaways. So one, historically, has been people love investing in stocks. They have the highest historical returns. We like to say 5% real on average, going back historically, the old 5-2-1 rule. Bonds yield around 2% real and bills around one. And you can also lump, you know, housing and gold and a bunch of other stuff in that one bucket. And so, but people don't like stocks as much because of the nominal price declines where they're typically kind of crashy, where it happens over a couple years. 1920s, stocks lost over, I think, 80%. And then uh, in the 2000s, we've had a couple of 50% bear markets that people can recall. And most people relate to bonds as not having really the big nominal price declines. And so people diversify, of course, but bonds are equally as risky. It's usually a different reason. It's the long eroding effects of inflation. So for us, that was like the 60s and 70s in the US, but different countries, different times, but very similar results in the UK, for example. So it just goes to show it's important to always think in terms of real terms rather than simply, and we could go down a long, long alley on this, but, but it's a good example. By the way, my followers, super smart, probably mostly professionals. Not only did they get that quiz wrong, they got it extremely wrong. They answered the number one, two, three, four. They got it directionally wrong too. What the actual answer was, was the smallest amount of people. So it was over 80% got it wrong. I don't know. This seems like a hard time for me to figure out what to do with the whole bond thing. You know I mean? We've, bonds have come down from whatever, 12, 15% yields back in the late seventies. And now it appears that they're beginning to climb again from off close to historic lows or historic lows. And so, you know, do you put them in a portfolio and expect they're going to have the same sort of diversifying effect as a traditional 60-40? Do you anticipate massive headwinds for the next decade? Do you think rates will just sort of hover near these lows for another decade? I mean, what the hell do you do? We don't know what rates are going to do, of course. But so there's the Japan example on one hand where once interest rates came below 2%, they've never gone above you have this weird world of negative interest rates. I mean, we wrote a paper on this called on the sovereign bond paper, finding yield in a 2% world or something. Mm-hmm. We'll post a show link, but that strategy has done fantastic since publication. And that's simply just an, a, a value approach where you're investing in higher yielding currencies. The problem with that strategy is if, and when it hits the fan, that's historically not been a great safe strategy. So it's not a safe bucket where it diversifies because a lot of it, it's emerging market countries right now, but it should, if according to history, outperform by a couple percentage points versus a global bond portfolio, which is yielding, if like G, G5, G7, G10 countries, like a half or one, not even 1%. US is getting close to being in the top yielding bucket, by the way, which is kind of funny because there's just so many countries that in Europe and other, elsewhere that, are, that are, have really low yields. So I think there's two separate buckets. I think for us, it's a global tilt towards carry. And then as a diversifier kind of safety, you still want treasuries and or munis. Kind of same thing in my mind, high quality munis. At what point would you pay more attention to tips? I I think it's a great asset class for the real asset bucket, both US and global. And I think it's U.S. tips were introduced in the late 90s. I think they were actually illegal to issue before that Sorry, for some reason. Uh, define it first for... Uh, Treasury Inflation Protected Securities. So they're great. They're more in the real return bucket than they are in traditional fixed income bucket. 
All right, why don't we hop to some Twitter questions unless there's anything else you want to Let's add go. on any of this. All right, uh, first one's great. Kind of uh, holds your feet to the fire here. I like it. it. says, why should we listen to your podcast when you say the best ROI is to focus on skills directly benefiting our work performance? So first, why don't you contextualize the, uh, the article he's referencing. It was an old article we did called The Best Way to Add Yield to Your Portfolio or something. You probably wrote the headlines. You probably remember. I don't. <laughs> and basically, it showed the example that people are in this never-ending alpha quest. And basically, came to the conclusion, unless you have a couple million bucks, or maybe it was even $10 million, you shouldn't be spending a ton of time on your investments. So that's why you should listen to podcasts. You learn that, by the way. <laughs> Other podcasts won't Damn. tell you that. Take that. Yeah. So you wouldn't have heard that elsewhere. But basically... If you're spending a ton of time on your investments in search of alpha, you have to generate an enormous amount of alpha to compensate for the time you're spending doing it. So if you love markets and history and this is your hobby, that's awesome. And you're learning about the world. The cool part about learning about investing is you learn about econ and global finance and politics and psychology and all that stuff mixed in. So it's not a waste of time. I, I'm just being a little dramatic. My, my point was that if you're going to spend a lot of time on the search to outperform is a little different than just understanding the craft of investing and, and studying all the other things I was talking about, business in general, is that you're better off suited, particularly if you're younger, particularly if you don't have a huge portfolio, spending that time working, investing in yourself, making more money, saving more money. So one of the bigger investing takeaways, I think it's hard for people, is that when you have a smaller portfolio and smaller amount of assets, your personal finance de decisions swamp your investment decisions. So the takeaway for most of these people is, hey, buy a bunch of low-cost ETFs, put them in an account and be done with it. Check back in in a couple years, keep saving, adding more to it. But that's really great advice for anyone, by the way, but, but particularly for people that are early in their career and really invest in yourself and try to get to a place where you're building a business or you're you know, getting a graduate degree that may increase your, your salary or you work. 10% harder each week. But the returns are probably not going to come from you day trading crypto and, and biotech stocks. Reminds me of uh, Andrew Tobias. We had him on a few episodes ago. And you know the headline of that one was, there are just a few things you really need to know about investing and they don't ever change. And it seems like a lot of people get into investing and there's this belief that the, the, the more you learn, the better off you're going to be. So you learn all these strategies and eventually people kind of have their moment where they're like, it doesn't have to be this complicated. It really is just sort of the basic rules and just let time and compounding do its thing. You and I talked a lot about this, about doing kind of this investment one-on-one book. Listeners, if you have a good title, let us know. We need to come up with a good title. But it's almost like the old food pyramid where what matters. Mm -hmm. And I think probably what people think matter is probably inverted to what is really going to affect their returns and, and success. Vanguard actually sent these to the idea farm, had a couple great PDFs where they talk about this and they say, look, here's the real big levers for your portfolio over time and the growth. And it's, and it's what we talked about. It's how much you spend, it's how much you save, how often you're and early you are into investing and, and your dollar cost averaging in and all these things versus outperforming the markets is not really a, one of the biggest determinants. All right, next question. This one also kind of holds your feet to the fire, which I like. And it's a little bit of a two-parter. 
references dividends, which you actually kind of touched on earlier in this podcast, but let's just jump in. Meb, you said you'd like to invest in a farm REIT, but you've written about dividend investing as a suboptimal strategy. Can you reconcile these two apparently contradictory ideas? Also, Meb, you posted uh, a tweet from Michael Batnick. Uh, He was referencing a quote that said, Dividends have also held up relatively well during the market downturns. According to Schiller, the stock market fell more than 80% on a real basis during the Great Depression, but inflation-adjusted dividend levels were down just 11%. When stocks get chopped in half during the brutal 1973-74 bear market, dividends fell just 6% in that time. And since the 1960s, the annual rate of growth on dividends has never been negative over all rolling five-year periods. So basically, how do you reconcile these things? Okay, there's a lot wrapped up in there. The first part is, you know, going back, there's so much nonsense going on in the media right now that that talks about buybacks and dividends and everything else. And I would direct all of our listeners to go pick up a copy of Shareholder Yield. It's like two bucks. And really start to understand corporate structure and what, what goes on. Jack Vogel, who's been on the podcast, uh, wrote a great article on this this week. Because a lot of people were being negative about buybacks in the media. And, and he said, okay, well, and we had posted an article about it as well. And so it, it said, you know, so let's ignore the buyback dividend piece. He said, there's only a few things people could, companies can do with their money. They can sit on it. They can invest in their operations, you know, and grow the company, build a new plant, R&D, whatever. They can return it, which is dividend and buybacks. And really the other one being... They could pay down debt as well if they have it, or they can go acquire business. But the main two ones, investment and returning the cash to shareholders. And he says, okay, so all these people that hate buybacks for some reason, he says, well, okay, let's look at the alternative. If you're not going to return to cash through dividends and buybacks, here's investment only. And the funny part is if you invest in companies with high internal investment, you do the stocks, you do far worse than if you invest in the ones with low investment. And so it's kind of funny because the media gets all, you know, the media is like, oh, these all these terrible CEOs investing in these stupid R&D projects, you know, but they don't want them to return cash. There's like no possible right answer, you know. And the funny thing I tweeted about, I said, all these people that hate buybacks, you know what the alternative is? You're buying a stock that's issuing a ton of stock. That's the, the other side of the coin. If they're not buying it back, they're issuing it. So you want to be highly diluted? That's crazy. And so... There's a great chart from O'Shaughnessy that lists buybacks over time back to the 60s and what valuation those buybacks were conducted at. And so it showed that net issuers, companies issuing stock, were trading at a valuation premium, which makes sense because CEOs are saying, hey, our stock's expensive, let's issue shares. And then buybacks were in general a valuation discount. And then high conviction buybacks that were 5 or 10% of the float in a year were at an even more valuation discount. So it kind of really goes uh, is a huge argument against all the buyback haters where they say CEOs are so stupid. We're like, no, CEOs are no dummies. The one that the stocks that were really cheap, they were buying back hand over fist. So all this gets encompassed into the CEO's job. And we've talked about this a lot on the on the podcast where the book, I'm blanking on the name, Outsiders? No. Uh, 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 yeah. Outsiders. Yeah, outsiders. Yep. Thorndike? Yep. Okay. It's a fantastic book. And it's the CEO's job to allocate capital where the return is best. So for some, that may be investment. For some, it may be dividends and buybacks. For some, if their stock's super expensive, it's 
good idea to probably issue some shares and raise capital and or go acquire some businesses with your expensive shares. I mean, some it's do nothing because they don't have any good ideas. So all of this is you should be somewhat agnostic what they do. It's just wherever it's best used. And it's hard to know. And so from a what we were talking about with, first of all, I don't hate dividends in general. It's just that it's a nonsensical investment strategy to focus on stocks that just pay dividends or pay high dividends. And as we talked about in this paper we wrote, which we'll, we'll do a show note link to, all you're really trying to look for in the first place is value. And so if you look for value, then just do value. And often that has a lot of echoes with dividends, or in our case, we much prefer shareholder yield. So there's a lot wrapped up in that. But I think we've seen a lot of real-time evidence, both at our firm as well as others, that those strategies work. You know, and we talk a lot right now about dividends being expensive. And so the, the listener who wrote into the first part of that question about dividends and farmland, I mean, farmland is just an asset class. It has some exposure to you know, real estate because you own farmland, but really it's simply a business that's pretty uncorrelated to the other businesses and has its own cycles. But it's really hard to allocate to other than through private ownership or private funds. There, there was one or two public farmland REITs, and I think one bought the other. Might There might be two left. I can't remember. Anyway, but REITs historically by law have to pay out it's like 90% of their earnings is, is dividends, right? So it's not that I hate dividends and REITs are a totally fine asset class too. They can be great. They can be terrible based on valuation. It's really, you're looking for value. And if they happen to pay out dividends, that's just a function. That's a part of the structure. Yeah, it sounds like the motivate. Well, the clarification would be your motivation for a REIT wouldn't necessarily be the cash stream from the dividend payout. It would be either the value or the diversification or whatever the REIT structure is offering you and the, the farmland itself. You're getting a blueberry farm or an go. almond farm or a wheat farm. Like I would love to own, if, if farmland was a publicly available asset class, it would constitute a large chunk of allocation for me. Like, <laughs> like 10% easy. Well, it's just, it's, it's a very diversified business stream that globally is a huge part of the global market portfolio on the private side, not on the public side. Kind of a quick throwback to buybacks. Something I thought about a while ago, which I haven't heard much on recently, some of the detractors of buybacks would reference sort of executing a buyback as a manipulation of EPS around earnings. Have you seen anything recently there's, around that? Uh, there's a simple answer to that. And then that's not a buyback issue. That's a CEO compensation issue. So if you're a board and you're tying your CEO's compensation to EPS... That's on you, earnings per share. You could tie their compensation to a gazillion other metrics. So that that's a board issue, not a buyback issue. But you don't see this as like ubiquitous enough in the industry to really deem it a concern. It's not a concern from an investor standpoint or our standpoint because we're never buying stocks. We're not trying to buy expensive stocks. We're trying to buy cheap stocks that happen to be buying back shares. So... And then Buffett agrees with this. He says, there's no better use of capital if the company's cheap than to buy back its own shares. And so the whole point is that, great, if a CEO realizes his company's really cheap and he's buying back shares, great, we'll be on the same side. If the company's expensive and he's buying back shares, we'll never invest in it because it's expensive. So you have to screen, no matter what you do in all these approaches, you have to use value as well. Otherwise, you're going to end up I mean, the last thing you want is an expensive dividend stock or an expensive company buying back shares. 
That's stupid. That's a horrible way to invest. And so you want to be on the correct side of the ledger. So there's a lot of, I'm not saying it's a, it's a, it's a bad incentive because it is, but that's a board issue, not a, not an investor issue. I don't think. Now, if you're a big enough investor, if you're some trillion dollar Calpers or something that's, you know, investing in these companies, you could affect some change and say, board, we're, you're going to, and Buffett talks a lot about this, about having CEO pay better aligned with company and long-term stock interests versus crazy quarterly earnings per share that really have no impact on the long-term. Quarterly capitalism. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Next question, which I assume is based upon valuation here, but we'll see. Meb, which asset class, both domestic and international, is going to shine five years from now? I would say the same thing that I said in a Real Vision interview, the sweatiest interview I've ever done. Um, but it was down in the got a good video of that. I have it. Well, I don't know. I, you, if you sign up for probably a, a trial or sign if you're a Real Vision subscriber, it's great video service. Anyway, but I, I told Raul, who's also been on the podcast. By the way, it's really funny. We get so many emails and tweets where people are like, you need to have so-and-so on the podcast. I'm like, he was, he was on like two months ago. Go check the archives. Who was like the last half one? The, half, we just had that. Half the suggestions we get are people that have already been on, at least, if not three quarters. Anyway, so check the archives, mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. Anyway, so Raul and I were talking, and he asked that question. I said emerging markets. And I said, you know, my, my portfolio is all in the Trinity portfolio, which, by the way, most of the momentum stuff is tilted towards foreign equities, cheap equities, and a lot of emerging markets right now. And so is the value. So you have like a double exposure to emerging markets and cheap equities through both the momentum and the value side. And that's my favorite. It's always when value is agreeing with momentum and trend, that's the best time for returns. And you've seen that. So emerging markets in some of these cheap Cape countries over the last three years, really since 2015, have stomped everything else. 2014 was a stinker. But if you pull up these any of these funds and, and asset classes since 2015, they've all really, really stomped. And it's, and it's continuing in 2017. This makes sense. The emerging market CAPE ratio is half the U.S. So half. So, so my, my entire, by the way, our company 401k or whatever it is we set up a couple of years ago just goes all into emerging markets. Because we don't have any Cambry funds, which is amazing. I mean, but, do you see this running another five, 10 years? You know, so if you think back to 2000, 2003, emerging markets, really all the way through 2007, just destroyed U.S. stocks. And everyone's all excited about the BRICS. And then, of course, emerging markets got expensive. India and China were trading in the 40s and 60s. Like, it was crazy. And then, so, when the next bear came, they all got hammered, and they've underperformed since then. Well, instead of being at a valuation premium, which they were, they're now at a huge valuation discount. This is the largest discount that I can find going back to the 80s for foreign and particularly the cheap stuff versus the US. Still despite the run up since despite 2015. The run-up because it's such a so the the cheap cape basket went from 9 to now it's like 12 or something or 8 to 12 or 13. And the US has continued to go up so it's at 32, 33, but look at year to date emerging markets are up 5, US is flat ish. Depends on what you're looking at. So 
Um, yes, I think this continues for a while. Well, to what extent, though, if the, if the U.S. market, equity market rolls over, to what extent is that going to have collateral effect? Every, on- every bear market's different. So would I expect emerging markets to emerge totally fine? No, I wouldn't. But 2000 is a good example where a lot of asset classes did just fine. REITs did fine. Bonds did fine. Um, Dividend-paying stocks did fine. Small cap did fine. Emerging market did fine. It was really just the super market cap-weighted NASDAQ tech, market cap-weighted stocks that did very poorly in 2000. Whereas in 2008, everything got hammered. But remember, emerging markets were expensive going into that. So uh, I would, I mean, if you're, if you were to put on any pair trade, I think the cheap countries versus US is about as good as it gets. That is like the, the one of the few times I can think about you making a strong conviction recommendation right but there. But I've been I'm saying impressed. the same thing for the last four years, ever since Global Value book came out. It's just the reaction is now changing from people. You know, the it's funny because over all these years, it, it's now, everyone now kind of gets it, but it's after the emerging markets have gone up. I mean, Brazil is up 130% since the last couple of years. Is there a specific emerging market country you would want to stay away from just because no, of... I, I'm agnostic. Like, I don't... People get into these weird sort of you know, hey, we can't invest in that country or this one is habitually low CAPE ratio or this one's habitually high. You know, I, I'd note the differences and accept it. And you know, I would never pick just one. So, you know, we, our fund buys a dozen countries. So if Portugal tanks, well, you know, that's part of the game. Um, and good, hopefully one of the other countries will, will balance that out. So, it's uh you certainly have to diversify but but russia is certainly one of the cheapest i think was that the cheapest in our last update czech republic doesn't really well. i got under because... russia years ago and i've been underwater for a while well <laughs> it's coming yeah. back though yeah <laughs> all right next question best strategy for folks with a limited selection of 401k funds i think depending on how bad it is and some of these can be pretty bad with high fees i think the default is the lowest possible fee funds you can get in your plan. Well, that's interesting. Uh, you would say low fees over, like potentially you just referenced emerging markets as being great. So you would say fees well, it over just depends value? On the, it depends on the challenge. I mean, it depends on the allocation. So if you're going to do all equities, then do the global market portfolio and or tilt towards value. So buy value global equities. You know, if that's too much kind of velocity for you, then put half in bonds and then do the same thing. Do global bonds. But 401ks, you got to remember, so people are going to be dollar cost averaging into those for the next 5, 10, 20 years. And so the starting point actually starts to matter a lot less because you're going to be averaging in over time. And so putting it all in equities is actually fine if you can emotionally sit through it. You know, again, if I had to choose, I would certainly choose emerging than developed than U.S., but they probably have some sort of global fund or value global equities fund. But, you know, you want to pay as little as possible for for those funds. Okay. And the ETF, by the way, the, so, so that I just don't sound like some crazy ETF evangelist, you know, the ETF structure is actually not that big of a benefit in retirement because it doesn't have tax deferred accounts because the tax benefit is not the same. Now, they are still vastly cheaper on a fee basis usually, and they don't have a lot of the conflicts of interest as a lot of mutual funds do, but the tax benefit goes away. Okay, next question. 
I read your article on how to beat 98% of mutual funds. It was interesting, but could you invert it and find a way to stay invested in the top 2% of mutual funds? So that article was about just tracking Buffett. And the takeaway from the article was actually different than what this reader just asked. The takeaway was that if you pick Buffett's top 10 stock picks every quarter when they were public back to 2000, you'd outperform the market by five percentage points a year and beat 98% of all mutual funds. But during that stretch, Buffett's underperformed, I think it's eight of the last 10 years. So the point of the article was that it's just to demonstrate how hard it is to stick with a strategy or style or a manager. So despite the fact you would have creamed everyone, you'd, you would have underperformed almost every year in the past 10. And almost no investor on the planet would sit through that. Or even institution, endowment, I don't care. Certainly not most mom and pop individual investors. Reminds me of Wes Gray and even God would get fired as a activist investor. And so Research Affiliates also just had a great article out on this where they looked at the six kind of most famous value factors. So price to earnings, price to book, all that stuff. And looked at it on a three-year rolling basis and did that kind of old school patchwork quilt where they showed they ranked each factor over every three-year period. And it's like kind of random. And so the problem is that those are all the same thing. It's value. But sometimes, you know, shareholder yield would crush price to book. And sometimes price to book would trail or, you know, beat for six years in a row or whatever it may be. And that's the same damn thing. Like that's literally the same category. So the challenge with persistence in mutual funds, I think there's a lot of research that shows you can certainly skim off a lot of the junk. And a lot of the junk happens to be high fee. Going back to the the Arnott's presentation, you know, it's a lot of the fund categories outperform gross of fees. And then depending on net of fee and then taxes, that's really where they got hammered. And so this applies to hedge funds, this applies to CTAs. There's a lot of research that, yeah, the managers do off value, offer value, but they take all of it in fees and then some. So the best thing you can do if you're searching for mutual funds and you want to be top quartile or decile, I think the, by far the biggest step is is to avoid high fee funds. But the problem is that's the least sexy for a lot of people. And so what are they going to do? They're going to chase the hot biotech or tech or energy or whatever it may be fund of the day of this cycle or of that cycle and then ruin all their chances. So it's, you know, it, it's hard. So the in an, even in certain areas where historically there has been persistence, so you've seen persistence in private equity funds historically, the top quartile, what they call it that's deteriorated and that's kind of gone away over the over this past cycle. You know, I think there are a number of factors that, you know, and this all goes back to our belief that if you're going to do the beta side, the buy and hold side, you should pay as little as possible, which is why we have an ETF that charges no management fee all and it's 30 bips because you don't do anything. Literally, you're not doing anything. So it should be as low as possible. And that's great. And that's an awesome world to live in. And so all of these asset classes, you should pay as little as possible. If you're going to allocate to try to get alpha, it's got to be super concentrated, active, and really different. And, you know, the hard part about that is is people sticking with it. So like the Buffett example, through a full cycle. I don't think anyone can. It's really hard. That would have to show up on the... Uh how to invest Maslow hierarchy. We had a uh, behavioral control. We had a uh, old post. This might've been pre you where it was called the Netflix prize for 
mutual funds. And there was a website, I think it might have just gotten sold, I'm blanking on the name of it, we can add it later, but it was a website where you could have some of these data quant prizes, like an X prize sort of thing. Where Netflix back in the day is like, if you can improve our algorithm, we'll pay you 10 million bucks, whatever it was. And they'll give you the data set. And so I said Morningstar should do this and just give everyone the data sets. And I think what you would find is there's probably, you know, six or seven factors that tilt the odds in your favor. And they're pretty common sense ones, I think. Um, but I, fees to me is probably probably the biggest. Well, I mean, it reminds me of your own study where you looked at the portfolios of whatever was 10 of the most famous portfolio managers out there from what early 70s. And basically, they since that time, the returns were all within... Well, you tell me the returns were all within like one or two percentage points. Right? It was as, yeah, it was asset allocation portfolios, and it basically said that your allocation didn't really matter. Yeah, it was just fees. It a lot of it was fees. I mean, it did kind of matter, but as long as you had the main ingredients, so you couldn't just be all bonds or all gold or something. But as long as you invested some in global stocks, some in global bonds, some in real assets, then they all kind of ended up in the same place. But huge determinant would be fees. And of course, taxes would be another one. But that again, that, that's just buy and hold. But yeah, I agree that that and to be very clear, I agree with Swinson that all that matters, though, is is the return after all these fees are considered. So if you find someone that can add value or an asset class or an approach, then that's worth its weight in gold. And, and it's great, you can pay one 2% for it. It just it raises the bar is the thing the default the default for every investor should honestly probably be just like Vanguard. Say, look, all right, here's my default Vanguard ETFs, not mutual funds, by the way. Although Vanguard has a, a kind of a special patent structure on some of their mutual funds where they can lay off their capital gains on their ETFs, which is a whole other topic. But that's the default is paying almost nothing. And then only then should you be able to say, okay, I'll allocate to this fund, but here's the reasons why. Fair enough. We're pushing an hour, so why don't we wrap this up? You have anything more to add? No, that's, that's it. No more. Yeah, we had like today. fifty Twitter questions. You just edit out all these, all these poor. Well, we, we've answered a lot tweets. of these before. They always tend to have a lot of the same themes, so we try to condense them into one question, and/or we've hit on them before. Did anyone so. ever respond to our voicemail we tried for like a month? <laughs> No. It's, it's still up there. Really? No, nobody responds to it. Nobody wants to have their. Uh, I wonder if their we, we got to figure out a way to do some sort of live played. call in. Maybe we should do a, a a real radio show. I think listeners, that, if that you, would expose you to way too many rants from your angry fans. Listeners, if you have any uh, any ideas, get us on the radio. That would be fun. That would be fun to do live call in. Otherwise, it's it's too hard. Anyway, well, the the challenge is somebody's going to mention funds, and so compliance will have an issue with that. Yeah, but I'm compliant, so I just I just say that's fine. <laughs> that's I'll ignore not it. How it. I works. just ignore it and segue. Uh, okay, listeners, again, if you're in any of those cities, reach out. If uh, you have any good suggestions for us for podcast number 101 to 200, let us know. Some good guests, sponsors, ideas, questions, new additions. Should we move to five days a week? Let us know. Um, shoot us email feedback at themebfavorshow.com if you guys have some questions send them the mailbag we will ask on air they got to get a little different Jeff says you guys are asking the same questions and we'll post show note links and everything mebfavor.com forward slash podcast leave us a review we need to we need to Jeff go in and look at some of these after episode 100 and pick out the 10, 10 best you still need reviews. to read the worst ones that would be a, a good sort of comedy bit we had, we had an amazing one on the book recently it says this is a dump read and I don't think it was a compliment. I think it was a, it was, 
Anyway. Is he just referencing where you read it? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe. He only reads my, my books on the toilet. I think that's it. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing. Good investing.